1 Corinthians chapter 2, and all of our young people, 6th grade and down, excitedly and loudly being dismissed to Children's Church. We do have running in the aisles here at Crossroads Baptist Church. Did you forget something, Isaiah? Okay. All right. Good man. By the way, I, and this is a strange way to begin a Sunday morning sermon, but uh, we got the Yellow Jackets nest taken care of. Um, after the Wednesday night service, kids playing in the landscaping here in the front, and one of the little girls got a bunch of yellow jackets up her nest and I think or up her skirt and I think several of the uh, adults helping her got stung. Judson and I came back late Wednesday night and they were still stirred up. Most of the time the yellow jackets get down the nest and you can pour gas down the hole and burn them out. It's really an awesome way to do away with yellow jackets. <laughs> we probably would have killed the tree. I got stung twice trying to do this at 11 o'clock at night in my pajamas. And uh, anyway, one got up under my shirt and stung me once and stung me on the hand. Anyway, let's say, I think the Lord probably spared us because it looks like it was a big enough hole. If it would have worked and they would have been in there and we would have started a fire, we'd have burned the church down. <laughs> so anyway, we had some uh, uh, a man from our pest control company, Neil and Cole, come and uh, take care of things. And uh, so thank the Lord for that. So I'm, I apologize for those of you who got stung. We got it taken care of. And at least as far as we know, he said, if there are any yellow jackets in a couple of weeks, call him and he'll come back and retreat for free. Uh, but it uh, looks like he got it taken care of and didn't have to burn the church down to do it. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 1. As I think about and pray about the final messages that I'll be preaching to you as your pastor, um, there are some humbling and convicting thoughts that come to mind, and this is one of the most challenging passages of Scripture to me as it relates to the work of preaching, and the seriousness of it, and the power of preaching. And I want to read it, and uh, then we'll give a little background, and I want to bring out several characteristics of preaching that transforms, preaching that transforms, and how Paul spoke of his own preaching, and acknowledged his own frailty. And he, in chapter number one, you remember, he talked about the foolishness of preaching. And what is fascinating to me is that it seems in every generation that I've either read about or the couple of generations that I've lived in and experienced overlapped, some older, some after me, you constantly are hearing a buzz about, well, preaching isn't popular anymore. And do you know what I've started saying to that? Preaching has never been popular. It wasn't popular when Paul used it 2,000 years ago. Jesus' preaching wasn't popular. Preaching has never been popular. It's always been considered foolish by the world. But it is God's appointed method for transforming lives. Okay. And a church that begins to diminish the importance... And I'm not saying this because I'm the pastor. Okay, But a church that begins to diminish the importance of preaching will be forfeiting the blessings and the power of God on their ministry. And so as you think to the future, as this church looks to the future, make sure and keep a big high priority <clears throat> on the preaching of the Word of God. <clears throat> 
because that is God's appointed tool for transforming lives. Let's read the first five verses of chapter 2. And the way Paul says this is very emphatic. He said, and I, brethren, when I, he's saying, look at me. When I came, and he's not doing this to get attention to himself, but he's essentially setting himself up as exhibit A of what he finished talking about in chapter number 1, and that is this, is that God uses the weak things of this world to confound the wise. And the simple things to confound the mighty. God uses weak vessels like Paul. And Paul is essentially saying in context, chapter number 2, he's essentially saying, if you want an example of how God uses weakness to do powerful things, just look at me. And he says, as he, he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians in 55 A.D., he had planted the church at Corinth in 52 A.D. So he's looking back a few years later. And this is what he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Preaching that transforms. Let's pray. Father, I ask for your help today. If the Apostle Paul testified of weakness, then surely any preacher after him would testify of the same. And so, God, we need your help both as the human mouthpiece and as the listener. The remainder of our time together this morning. Lord, I know that we're looking around at some empty spots, folks homesick and Lord, I think about Luke battling with kidney stone and Grace home and Jesse home and others home dealing with sickness. And God, I pray that you would uh, encourage the hearts of those who are not able to be with us today. Thank you for the guests that are here. Thank you for your sovereign plan that brings us all together at this appointed time for a thousand purposes that you desire to accomplish. And uh, God, I need your help. And I pray that you would move in our midst in a special way this morning. And we ask these things in the name of the crucified one, the Lord Jesus. Amen. I've told you the story before the young expositor, the young pastor who at the end of a service had been getting all of his accolades at the back door. And his wife and three little ones were all flustered. One of them missing a shoe, and she's tried to get them all tucked in the car and buckled in the seats, and she's got a strand of hair hanging down the middle of her face. Have you ever seen a wife like that? Her bangs fall down and hanging right there. And he gets in the car, the pastor does, and he looks at his wife, and he said, Mrs. So-and-so, as she was leaving today, told me that she thinks I'm the next great expositor of this generation. And she... Blew that wisp of hair up over her bangs and looked at him as one of the kids is screaming in the back. The other one needs a diaper changed and everybody's hungry. He looks at her and he says, so just how many great expositors do you think there are in this generation? And she looked at him and with only the candor that a wife could say to a husband, she said, one less than you think. 
as I've thought back on the past 13 years and the hundreds of sermons that the Lord has had me to preach here, I'm embarrassed by some of them. Not the word that was preached, but some of the humanity that came through. I think about times I've said things, I had to come back and apologize several times. And I, all I can say is this, is I'm glad that God uses us in spite of us. Okay, Whether as preacher or whether as Christian, whatever it is, God uses us in spite of us. The, the context of 1 Corinthians is that Paul has been away for three years. Remember, he started the church. Acts 18 records this. He was there for about 18 months and then moved on in his missionary journey. So about three years later now from starting the church, he's writing back. The reason he was stimulated to write them is for twofold. Number one, he had heard from the household of Chloe, you read about that in chapter one, that there was division. And they were divided, and we'll talk maybe a little bit more about this this evening. And so there were some things he had heard, but then it's also apparent, remember the outline of 1 Corinthians from previous study that we've done in the book, he would say, he would open a new section by saying, and now concerning, and now concerning this, and now concerning this. And it's apparent that they had actually written him a letter, and so he is responding to things he's heard and to things he's read in a letter. And it's significant to me, and I maybe you'll say a little bit more about this a little further on in the message. It's significant to me that, that for all of Corinth's problems... Okay, who would name their church Corinth Baptist Church unless you're in a city named Corinth, okay? And, and I was really challenged about this early this morning, thinking about Corinth. But you know, for all of Corinth's problems, and, you, you, and we'll say a little bit more about this in a moment, in just three years, it was powerful what God had already done. Look at, look at chapter 6. Let me, I'm jumping ahead of myself here. Chapter 6 and verse number 9. You want to talk about a journey and transformative power being accomplished and effective in just three years. Notice 1 Corinthians 6 and verse number 9. Paul said, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators... Now notice this laundry list. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Can I tell you a modern word for that right there? Homosexuals. Okay. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers. Revilers are people that like to just, they just like a fight. It's like it, it energizes them. And they're always looking for it. Revilers, nor extortioners. Those are people that find legal ways to steal. None of those people, that, that's their lifestyle, they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Notice verse 11. And such were some of you, but now you're washed. Amen. In three years. And you know, I, I got to tell you, in the past, I, and, and I still, it's, it, you look at Corinth and you're like, man, what a mess. But look at what they were three years prior. Look at the work the transforming work of God. And so, 
Now, the thing that moves me about Corinth is, as bad of a mess as they still were, to their credit, when they had a list of questions and problems, they wrote to Paul. They didn't go to Joel Osteen. They didn't go to... I know he wasn't in existence, okay? I get my chronology, okay? They went to Paul. That says a lot about Corinth. That even as much of a mess as they were, they knew where they needed to get answers. Okay, And so Paul hears, Paul gets the letter. And here's what Paul does. Here's what I believe is going on in his mind and what the Spirit of God has him write down in these first five verses. And that is this. He's already in chapter number one. He has testified that it's the preaching of the cross that saves those that believe. Okay, it's not reformation, it is regeneration, it is supernatural power that only God can exercise. Okay. And Paul said, when I came, that's what I preached. And essentially what I believe he's saying in the first few verses of chapter number 2, as these Corinthians have written him about their problems, Paul takes their mind back to what he preached and how he preached when he came there three years earlier, and he's essentially saying this, The same book and the same power and the same preaching that transformed you three years ago to make you children of God and establish a New Testament church, that is the same preaching, it's the same means that God will use to fix all your problems right now. And then Paul Paul makes this clear as well. It is not a man that is the means of transformation. It is God. It is His Word. And Paul's essentially saying, listen, don't don't give me credit. I'm a frail, weak human being. The power is God's power. The power is the preaching of Christ. The power is the testimony of God. That's what transforms people. And so as Paul looks back, he wants the Corinthians to remember this. Now, all that being said, I want to look briefly at several characteristics of preaching that transforms. And i got to tell you, it thrills my heart to think back over the 13 years that God's given us together here. And to think that there are people in this room right now who came to know Christ as a result of the ministry of Crossroads Baptist Church. And the faithful witnessing of people in this church and people sitting here this morning who responded in invitations in the years past to the preaching of the gospel and were taken to a private place in this building and the Bible was opened by a faithful believer and people were led to Christ as a result of the ministry of this church. And to watch people grow and to see the testimonies of that and and the life-changing power of the gospel of God. And I want you to get something to me or from me this morning. That is this. That is amazing. It, it, it blows my mind that every time this book is opened and it is preached, something supernatural is happening. Whether it is a lost soul being drawn to Christ or whether it is believers who've been saved for 30, 40, 50 years, a supernatural work of sanctification taking place in their lives. Don't ever underestimate what takes place when the Bible is preached. Please.
I want you to notice the first characteristic. It's there in verse number one. And I'm going to let the wording, with the exception of one of the four words, I'm going to let the wording of uh, your Bible give us our outline this morning. And I'm going to be afflicted with that disease called alliteration where all the points begin with the same letter. The first word is declaration. Preaching that transforms is preaching that is a declaration of the testimony of God. Notice verse number one. Paul said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech. That word excellency is the idea of uh, preaching that uh, holds something over somebody's head. It is not a criticism to a preacher when people say, You know, I can understand what he's saying. I remember hearing a preacher say years ago that, that genius is not taking the simple and making it profound, but taking the profound and making it simple. Amen. Dad used to tell us for years when he would start sending us into children's church and on bus ministry and different things like that, he said, boys, if you can preach to a third grader, you can preach to anybody. Making things simple. I remember hearing years ago the testimony of Monroe Parker, the great evangelist, before the Lord took him home. And he was sitting on a service or on a platform and he had prepared a very deep doctrinal message. And listen, we need deep doctrine, but I'm glad that we have the ability to take deep, deep doctrine and make it understandable. Okay. But he said he was sitting there and wrestling with preaching this message, and the Spirit of God just convicted his heart and brought to mind the song. Make the message clear and plain, Christ receiveth sinful men. Just make it clear and plain. Simple. And Paul said, listen, when I came, I didn't come with excellency of speech, holding things over people's heads as if to intimidate them with some kind of high intellectual elitism. I didn't come with man's wisdom, but what did he come doing? He came, notice this, declaring unto you the testimony of God. Preaching that transforms is a declaration of the testimony of God. The word declaring that Paul uses here is literally a word that means a message from above that has been brought down. Now there are two applications in my mind as I think about the meaning of that word declaring. And that is this. A Bible preacher is simply someone who tells you and me what God has said. Amen. The message is from heaven, and he simply brings it down. He's the messenger, if you would, of heaven's word. But there's also in this very practically the idea of just getting, as we can say, getting the cookies on the lower shelf. Grace made an amazing batch of cookies last night. Eliza didn't get any yet, except through mama's milk. Okay. But I will tell you this, I'm glad that those cookies were down in the reach, amen? Okay. Getting the cookies down on the lowest shelf so that anyone can understand. Paul said himself, we use great plainness of speech. And Jesus, it was said of him that the common people heard him how? Gladly. And so, he didn't use excellency of speech or of wisdom, but he came declaring unto them the testimony of God. The word testimony that Paul uses here is evidence that God has given. And when I think about preaching that transforms being a declaration of the testimony of God, it is evidence, it is simply pointing out the evidence of 
the creative power of God. It is testifying to the existence of God. It is upholding the evidence of God's character. He is always good all the time. He is sovereign. He is in complete control all the time. And upholding the characteristics of God. What do you know about your God? I believe one of the reasons that people struggle is because they don't have a good day in and day out working knowledge of the attributes of who their God is. His omnipotence. There is nothing outside of the power of God. His omniscience. There is nothing that goes on in even the deepest, darkest recesses of the universe or the human heart that God does not know. And on and on we could review the characteristics of God. That's part of the testimony, the evidence of who He is. I think about the fact that God wanted us to know in detail, in words, about Himself. The Bible is not the accumulation of man's ideas about God. It is God's self-revelation. He is the one that gave us the very words of it. I think about the fact that the ultimate expression of God's revelation is Jesus Christ. And so we think about preaching that transforms. It is bringing heaven's message down to earth. It is bringing it down at an understandable level and giving, declaring the testimony, the evidence of the creative power of God, the character of God, the canon of God, the scripture, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his redemptive work, the fact that he came once and he's coming again. But notice Paul moves on. Again, his, his main idea is this. He wants these folks to understand that what happened to you and the solution that you need even for your current problems is not going to be met by a man named Paul. He's simply God's tool. It's going to be met by the power of God and the preaching of His Word. And, and, and you, you know why I'm saying this. I'm saying this because God is removing me. But His work goes on here because you still have the book. Because God is going to bring you a preacher. The work goes on. Okay. Listen, listen, if, if you put your stock in a man, you're going to be really disappointed. You'll be really disappointed. I notice the second characteristic of preaching that transforms. Paul says in verse number two, for because of the declaration of the testimony of God, Okay, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so a second characteristic is not only declaration of the testimony of God, but a determination in the mind of the preacher. Paul said, for I determined based on based on the power of the declaration of the testimony of God. I reached the, the, the idea of the word determined is he reached a verdict in the courtroom of his mind. It's a legal term. Okay, it's not just talking about a baseless purpose or determination, but he's saying he, he had all the evidence, all the facts came to his mind and he reached a verdict. I'm just going to preach Christ and him crucified. I believe that Christians and the Bible principles that we have move us 
in the direction of conservative positions socially, politically, etc. Okay? I said it. All right? But I will tell you this, okay? And, and I'm, I'm getting ready to leave in a, a few weeks so I can say this. And if you get mad at me, then it's between you and the Lord, okay? But I want to say this. Okay, 13 years. That means we've gone through several presidential elections and local elections and things like that. And I've made a few statements from the pulpit about political issues and social issues and things like that. By the way, when it's stuff that the Bible speaks directly to, there's no beating around the bush when it comes to abortion. There's no beating around the bush when it comes to God's institution of marriage and that that's one man for one woman. Okay, there's no beating around the bush on that kind of thing. But... I have been purposely hesitant to make this pulpit a political platform. There are places for that. But let me tell you this. The pulpit of the local church is primarily, preeminently above everything else. It is a place where Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I love America. But let me tell you, as much as we love America, there's something bigger in this world and universe and time than America. We're citizens of a higher country. None of us will be on this earth (laughs) in this current form 100 years from now. I didn't plan to say any of that, but let me just say this. When a pastor makes personalities, a soapbox. When he makes preferences, a soapbox. When he makes politics, a soapbox. Okay? He is departing from preaching that really transforms lives. The preaching that transforms lives is a preaching that is based on a determined... And and I'm not saying I've been perfect, folks. I've been far from perfect. And I've looked back over the last 13 years and these last several months, and God has done a convicting work in my life. I'm like, man, I'm growing, I'm growing, I'm growing. But Paul reached a verdict in the courtroom of his mind, not to know anything among you save or accept Jesus Christ. This speaks of the person of Christ. I've been thinking so much about what the preaching of Christ does. When you just hold up Jesus... When you get to the Gospels and you begin to describe the one who said of himself, I am meek and lowly of heart, and and that a smoking flax he would not quench, and a bruised reed he would not break. You know what that does? That just stirs me emotionally. It just makes me love Jesus. It makes me want to be like him. And I fail so much. But you think about how it stirs us emotionally. You think about the person of Christ and how it challenges us mentally that he was God and man, 100% God, 100% man, and yet in his humanity completely sinless, and yet we can't understand it, and yet that was absolutely necessary in order for him to be God's appointed substitute for your sin and mine. I'm glad he was human because then he knows and empathizes with everything that I'll ever experience. I think one of the problems with some of 
Hollywood's, among many other issues, Hollywood's renditions of the life of Christ as they almost picture him, even the ones that acknowledge his deity, almost picture him as a robot. But I love the fact that Jesus is a carpenter. And then he wore sandals. And then he got hungry. And then he got so tired that he fell asleep in the bow of a storm-tossed ship on Galilee. I love that about Jesus. That means that though he was God in the flesh, he knows what you and I are going through. He knows what it's like to stand at a graveside and weep over the loss of a loved one. He knows what it's like to agonize over one that he loves being sick. He knows what it's like to interact with friends and those closest to him who just don't get it. And yet keep loving them patiently with long-suffering. He knows that. He knows what it's like to have family reject him. And think he's crazy. He knows. And when I think about Paul saying, I determine I'm not going to know anything among you save Jesus Christ. You know what happens when you just hold up Jesus and when you see Jesus, how can you not help but love him? And when you think about your love for Jesus and all that he is growing, when you think about how it enhances your view of him, it changes the way you live in every other area of life. How he affects us in our will. And I think about all he did for me. It makes me want to step and move for him. And then notice what Paul says, I determined, reach the verdict in the courtroom of my mind, not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him what? Crucified. Now, what Paul is not saying here, he's, he's not saying that all you do is ever preach the gospel. Jesus died for our sins, was buried, raised again, and rose. He's, he, he's already equated preaching Christ and him crucified to the testimony of God. In verse number one, okay. But here's what he is doing. He's talking about the whole person of Christ and him crucified, which is in a sense the apex of his work. Do you think in the first century, considering what crucifixion was in the Roman culture and in the Greek world, in that first century world, do you think that's the way that a famous man would want to be remembered? Vilified. Slandered, humiliated. That's all wrapped up in the word crucified. But that is the thing that Paul says should just really grip us about Jesus. Think about all that's wrapped up in his crucifixion. The fact that he was crucified, we think about the fact that no man took his life from him, he laid it down of himself. We think about why he had to be crucified. He had to be crucified because he's the only one who could pay your sin debt and mine. He had to be crucified so you and I didn't have to die eternally. His crucifixion was the payment for your sin and mine. The fact that he was lifted up on a cross as our sin-bearing substitute and bore in his body the wrath of God is testimony as he cried out, it is finished, is testimony that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice. 
And on and on. We could preach on the significance of the crucifixion for years and never even scratch the surface. And so why waste our time preaching on things that really in the grand scheme of things are not significant? I like making people laugh. Anybody here like making people laugh? I like, I like having a good time. I like telling stories. And all of those places, when all those items, when it comes to preaching, they do have a part. But let me tell you something. If it begins to encroach upon the determination to know Christ and Him crucified, it departs from the realm of preaching that transforms. And so the determination not to know anything among you The word know there is the idea of to hold before the eyes of the mind. But I want you to notice a third characteristic of preaching that transforms. Let me just preface before I read verse 3 by saying this. It's not excellency of speech. It's not the personality of a preacher. I'm always fascinated by the fact that one of the greatest messages that's ever been preached in the history of the United States of America. July the 8th, 1742... Enfield, Connecticut, 1741. Enfield, Connecticut. Jonathan Edwards. Heard the name before? Jonathan Edwards stood in Enfield, Connecticut and preached a message that he had preached a month before in his own church and nothing had happened. But he had prayed for two or three nights all night long before he preached in Enfield, Connecticut. And he stood up in that church and he preached his famed message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He was not a dynamic preacher, history records for us. He dressed in a black robe. Thank God those days are gone. Preached in a black robe. They said that when he finished preaching many times because his eyesight was so poor and he preached from a manuscript. How would you like it if I got up and read for you word for word from a manuscript? By the way, there are some preachers that can do it effectively. Not this one. But they said that many times when he finished preaching, because his eyesight was so poor, he had held that manuscript in front of his face, he would have ink smudges on the end of his nose when he finished preaching from swiping the pages across his nose as he read his message. The indication is this. There were times you couldn't even see his face. And yet as he preached that message, the power of God fell. And that message was effective in contributing to what we call the Great Awakening. In our colonies. By the way, that is no sanction on boring preaching. Okay, and I know I've been guilty of some of that before too. But as I think about the Apostle Paul and the characteristics of preaching that transforms, I notice verse number three, and I'm going to land the airplane here real quick. Paul said in verse number three, and I was with you. That's a fascinating statement right there. I was with you. You go back to Acts chapter number 18. I won't take the time to do there. But in the first two verses of Acts 18, it sets the historical context for when Paul went to Corinth. When he got to Corinth, yes, he had church planning on his mind, but he had to pay the bills. So you know what he did? He looked up a husband and wife team named Aquila and Priscilla who were tent makers by trade. You know how Paul paid the bills? He hooked up with Aquila and Priscilla and went down to the marketplace and started sitting on a stool with tent canvas and a big needle and thread 
and sewing and making tents all day. I got to tell you, that's not a red carpet prestigious way to enter a place like Corinth in the first century. And yet out of that, look what God did. And I was with you. Notice what he says in weakness. This is a reference to his physical weakness and infirmity. And in fear, this speaks of his reverence. He understood the seriousness of what he was doing. And then in much trembling. The, the, the word literally is related to our word for tremor. And Paul, so Paul says, I came as a tent maker. I was physically weak. I was there in a very serious mindset because I understood how important this was before God. And I was in much trembling, the end of verse number three. Uh, the idea is he was shaking, at least metaphorically, mentally, if not physically, because he distrusted his own abilities. He didn't trust himself. He didn't trust his heart. He, did, he knew if anything was going to get done at Corinth, it would not be because of him. It would be because of the God of the universe, because of the preaching of Christ. And so the third characteristic of preaching that transforms not only declaration and determination, but then also dependence. Notice verse number four. And we'll look at a fourth and final characteristic. In my speech, I believe this is a reference to the content of Paul's speaking. And my preaching, this is a reference to his delivery. His preaching style, if you would. Okay? The, the content of his preaching and his preaching style was not with enticing words. I'm looking at an auditorium of people who have been listening to Bible preaching for a long, long time, some of you. And you all have heard some pretty amazing preachers. In conferences and churches, you've heard some amazing preachers. But have you ever noticed, man, a guy can be really eloquent and it's easy for us to think about the preacher and not the God of the preacher. And we'll go running off to camp meetings, we'll go running off to conferences... If we're in a town where a, an eloquent preacher preaches, a passionate, dynamic preacher preaches who can just hold audiences spellbound, but let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. God sometimes gets put off to the side when there's too much of a man's talent on display. And, and, and we need to remember that. And Paul said, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words. It's the idea of persuasible words. Do you know what our English word persuasive uh, comes, I believe, from a Latin word persuado or something like that. And it means through sweetness, really sweet sound. It, words that tickle the ear. And Paul said, when I came, that's not the kind of preaching I did. I didn't use enticing words of man's wisdom, but notice this. Here's the fourth characteristic. But in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. Notice the spirit of God here is identified as distinct from power. That's key. Because there are those that think that the spirit of God is just a force or an emanation. He is the third person of the Trinity. 
He has personality. He indwells the believer. And when he does, he produces his fruit. Okay. The power that is used here, that is referenced by Paul, is the word dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite. It's effective power. It's transformative power. Okay. Paul said, the preaching that I did was in the demonstration. It was not the demonstration, but it was in the demonstration. In other words, it was in cooperation with what God wanted to do. It was in demonstration. The word demonstration that Paul uses here is very interesting. How many of you have ever been to a wax museum? You ever been to a wax museum? I think there's one in, I know there's a famous one in London. I think there's uh, some branches of that famous one in London, Madame Tussaud or something like that. And they create these wax images that look lifelike. And as a matter of fact, they even bring in some of these celebrities and athletes that they create these wax figures. And as a joke, in a normal tour day, they'll pull out the wax figure and they'll put the real person standing there. And then as a surprise, as tourists are coming through viewing these wax figures, then this person will come to life. But I thought about this, and you can go online, you can see pictures of some of these wax figures, and man, they look real. You get up close, and, and it looks like that is the real person. And yet, it's wax. It's been carved and painted. It looks real, but it isn't. That's the exact opposite of this word demonstration here. It's the idea of literally, out of what is real rolling back the curtain and bringing into display what is for real. My preaching was in the demonstration of the Spirit, what God can do in the Spirit and of power. And I've already mentioned this. You go over to chapter number 6, and, the, and, and I say this to the commendation of the Corinthians for all the mess that they were. From where they were three years ago when Paul first came and preached there, some of them homosexuals, some of them uh, legalized thieves, adulterers, and fornicators. And by the way, they're still dealing with fornication. Chapter number 5, Paul will have to confront that. But the point is this, is Paul said, look, look at what you used to be. Such were some of you. When I think about the transforming power of preaching, I look back on where we all used to be. Don't ever forget what you used to be. And Paul said preaching that transforms is a demonstration. It's not just someone who gets their ears tickled, goes through the motions, uh, prays a prayer, makes a profession, and there's no transformation. Bible preaching transforms lives. And why is this so important? Paul said, verse 5, that your faith, even though he's not there anymore, that your faith should not stand. The idea of that word stand is be existing. It's not talking about a static position. We could say it this way, that your faith should not be existing, going on, growing, moving forward in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The power that, as the old African-American preacher said years ago, God stepped out where there was nothing. And he hung the moon and the sun and said, now stay there. And he said, let there be light and light be. Do you know that's, that's actually very good Hebrew? You look in the original Hebrew, it's literally that, and light be. 
God said, let there be light, and light be. It was. The same God that spoke these worlds into existence in six days is the same God that Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter number 4, transforms the one who puts their faith in Christ. Same power. It's a new creation. New creation. That's not animals and land and water and heavenly bodies, but it's a new creation in an eternal soul. Hallelujah. Preaching that transforms is a declaration of the testimony of God. It's the determination of the preacher not to know anything among his listeners but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It is a preacher recognizing his dependence, his own frailty and weakness. And it's preaching that is done in the demonstration, the display of reality, real power, the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that our faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And His power never, ever is subject to the second law of thermodynamics. Father, thank You for Your Word in this passage this morning. As we conclude here in just a moment, I pray that every believer that is here would be looking back in their own life and just give you glory and praise that it's not a man that you've used, but it's the supernatural power of your word and the preaching of the cross of Christ and the testimony of God. That's what transforms lives. That's what gives us the answers that we need for all the dilemmas and the problems and the messes of life. And so, Lord, I pray that as we conclude this service, every believer here today would just give a fresh amen to that. And, Lord, if there's one here this morning that doesn't have assurance of the forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ and never trusted Him as their Lamb, who died as their substitute on that cross 2,000 years ago to pay for a sin debt they couldn't pay. And they've never trusted Christ for the washing away of their sins and they've never received from Him the gift of eternal life. I pray that before they leave today, they would seek me out or seek one of our folks out here and say, hey, I'm not sure I'm going to heaven. I'm not sure... I'm a child of God through faith in Christ. I need some help with that. And Lord, I just praise you right now, fresh and new, and with a heart overwhelmed, that the power to save sinners is as effective today as it was 2,000 years ago when the blood was first shed at that old rugged cross. It'll never lose its power. So I praise you for these things today. And so, Lord, if there's one without Christ today here, help, Lord, work in their heart. The Spirit of God's drawing them, and I pray that they'd be saved today. And that's our invitation to them, even as we conclude this service. And, Lord, for believers, help us to just with refreshed perspective understand that the power wasn't in Paul. It was in the testimony of God. 
the power is not in the man. The power is in this blessed old book and the Spirit of God who works through it. The power is in the cross. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.